Church, as we cap off our Lord's Day um, by opening up God's Word again, I'd ask that you bow your heads and pray with me now. Our great Lord and our God, this is your church. This is not our church. And you will do with us as you deem fit. We do not need to last for very long. Your name endures forever. We are but a vapor. But we would pray that you would use us in this world through our faithfulness to you and to your word to be a light for the gospel that echoes and shouts forth your name and the grace that comes from you. Use this message to sharpen us for that task. We pray this all in your name. Amen. We're going to be in Acts 5 eventually. But first off, it's embarrassing, isn't it? When you are the person at the restaurant who drops the plate, suddenly all forks and all spoons cease from activity and all heads turn towards you. All stop, all stare at you. And everyone is breathing to themselves. Why would you do that? And also, I'm so glad I didn't do that. And it's embarrassing, isn't it? When you get pulled over, southbound on the 99, on your way to church. It seems like 10,000 cars are passing you, all probably from this church. <laughs> they're all looking and they're all saying the same thing. Why would you do that? I'm so glad I didn't do that. And the police officer always takes his good old time, doesn't he? He's never in a hurry to get you out of there, right? He doesn't show up at your window and say, hey, while you were pulling over just for your convenience, I decided it would be helpful if I just printed off your ticket so you could just sally forth on your way. No, he's there to make you sit so that more cars will pass you. And the worst part, the worst part is the four little probing eyes in the back seat that are looking at you saying, why would you do that? I'm so glad I didn't do that. And it's embarrassing, isn't it? If you're a kid and you get in trouble with mom and dad, especially in front of all your brothers and sisters, because you know they're all saying the same thing under their breath, why would you do that? So glad I didn't do that. Sometimes it's called uh, rubbernecking, other times it's called gloating, but it seems to be human nature. When someone fails, we all must stop and stare and ask those questions. Why would you do that? I'm so glad I didn't do that. It's particularly tempting, it seems, when we're stopping and staring at another's sin, isn't it? What do we do when we get caught like that? We try to hide, we try to cover, don't we? This is so embarrassing, we say to ourselves. This could ruin me, we say to ourselves. But what does the Lord Jesus do when we sin? 
How does He respond to us when we have failed? What are His words? Tonight we're going to answer that question. It's an uncomfortable answer. It's a sobering answer, in fact. And so to answer that question, I'd ask you to turn to Acts chapter 5. And we'll take a running start at Acts, actually. Maybe you want to just park in Acts chapter 1. But we're going to eventually be in Acts chapter 5. But let me just give you a, just, a, just kind of a little bit of an introduction to the book of Acts. First off, the title itself, Acts. Whose Acts, you could say. Some like to call it the book of of the Acts of the Apostles. Matter of fact, if you're looking at your LSB right now, you're going to see that very title in red right there. The Acts of the Apostle. In ancient literature, sometimes there would be these uh, documents written about the acts of a certain individual. And usually, it told of their bold and their daring activities. And so perhaps this is what some people suggest Luke is doing here. He's telling about the bold and daring acts of the apostles of Jesus Christ. Acts certainly talks a lot about the apostles, their boldness and their courage for Jesus Christ. They are indeed changed men. In fact, we see an illustration of this all throughout Acts, but just for now, let's look at Acts 4. The apostles, of course, are being arrested in Acts 4 again, and they're being dragged before another uh, trial of sorts. As a matter of fact, you see in verses 5 and 6 of Acts 5 or 4 uh, that the, this is the, the religious big dogs of their day. They're even gathering in such a way as to intimidate. All the big names are here. And in such an impressive show of power, they ask intimidating questions like, by what power or in what name have you done this? That is, heal this lame beggar. But the response of these men shows that they are not the same men they used to be. Chapter 4, verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man, as to how this man has been saved from his sickness, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but whom became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. These are changed men. Matter of fact, the leaders recognize that they're changed, don't they? Verse 13, they recognize that these men are different because they have been with Jesus. I love that verse. The impact of being with Jesus in your life transforms you. They do not respond well to intimidation at all. 
Matter of fact, further on down the chapter, verse 18, when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to hear you rather than God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Changed men, bold men, courageous men. So, should we call it the Acts of the Apostles? Sure, but maybe not. Yes and no. It might be too limiting, I would suggest to you, to just call it the Acts of the Apostles. How about another title for this book? How about Acts of the Holy Spirit? Surely the book of Acts is more about the Spirit's powerful, transforming work in the lives of the apostles and how the Spirit works through them, right? Matter of fact, Acts 2 begins the transformation of the world by showing that the Spirit descends and dwells among His people. And even you see it there in in 4 verse 8, right? Where does Peter's boldness come from? It comes from being filled with Him, the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, the language there, filling, is, is very important here. This is not the same as the Spirit's indwelling, permanent, residing presence. But this is something that is repeated, apparently, in the lives of believers. And believers are even commanded to seek. Notice here in verse 8, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. And then down in verse 31, again, all of the disciples are filled again and begin to speak the Word of God with confidence. Why? Because the Spirit is filling them. So the Spirit permanently indwells believers, but He appears to fill believers at times when they intentionally rely on Him to obey Christ's Word and fulfill His work. You see this also in Ephesians 5.18. You see it commanded, be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit-filled life is a life of active dependence on the Spirit of God to obey the command of God. It's the Spirit that enables us to do, to obey. And the apostles are surely bold but their boldness comes from the Spirit and their dependence on Him. So, should we call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit? Yes and no. Once again, this might be still a little bit too limiting of a title. There are other significant characters that perhaps we should consider as well. How about, for example, the Acts of God the Father? Believe it or not, God the Father is very active in the book of Acts itself. He is the one who is planning. He is the one who is purposing all things. All in Acts, just like in Luke, is according to the plan of God the Father. Even persecution, even rejection, all is going according to plan. By the way, that's one of the encouragements that Luke has for us when we read the book of Acts. It's all according to plan. The Father's plan for our good and His glory. And if you turn, or if you look in Acts 4, again, verse 24, what happens after the apostles are released? They return to the church. 
And the church instantly gathers, and look how they pray. Verse 24, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Master, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why did the the Gentiles rage? And the peoples devised vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand. And the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your slaves may speak your word with all confidence. Will you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders happen through the name of your holy servant Jesus? And of course, verse 31, when they had prayed earnestly, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the Word of God with confidence. Who is the master? Verse 24. Who is the initiator? Whose plan is being accomplished? It is God the Father. So should we call it the acts of God the Father? Well, yes and no. Well, what is my preferred title? Well, just a few observations for you. This, once again, maybe... This is a little bit of review for some of you, but remember Acts is book two of a two-volume set. You, you can't just read Acts by itself. You have to read Luke as well. Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. Matter of fact, Luke 1, 1 gives us a preface for the Gospel of Luke, and he says, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, the servants of the Word, handed them down to us, it seemed fitting to me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in orderly sequence, most excellent Theophilus." so that you may know the certainty about the things you have been taught. Luke's gospel is to proclaim, present Jesus as the the perfect man, the son of man. He is God's perfect man sent to uh, fulfill God's perfect plan to save sinners. That's what the gospel of Luke is about. And Luke makes his case for Jesus as the perfect man again and again, showing us all of the things that Jesus both did and said that accomplished God's plan. But just look with me at chapter, chapter 1 of Acts. Once again, this is book 2 of, of Luke's two-book set. And look at how he begins Acts 1. He says this, the, the first account, O Theophilus, I compose about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over 40 days and speaking about the things concerning the kingdom of God and gathering them together. He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. Now, now look at this. You have all the players here 
right in the introduction, uh, making an appearance, right? We have the apostles. They are chosen and given orders, um, having witnessed Christ's resurrection. They're going to be central to the book of Acts. You see uh, God the Father and His plan clearly in view, right? Jesus was talking to them about the kingdom of God. That is how God is going to fulfill His plan. God's kingdom on earth. Matter of fact, this would be a very uh, Jewish question that they're asking in verse 6, right? When is your kingdom come? Because this is the plan that we've been looking for. There you go, Steve. I mentioned the millennium. Now you've done two messages in a row. We're on a roll, right? But notice also the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is also involved as well. Verse 2, the Holy Spirit is empowering it all. We've got who? We've got the apostles. We've got God the Father. And we've got God the Holy Spirit. But read closely who this book appears to be primarily about. Go back to verse 1. The first account, O Theophilus, I composed about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Is it possible that the book of Acts is a continuation of what Jesus is still doing, how he is still leading, still guarding, still shepherding, still directing his church through the power of the Holy Spirit, of course, according to the plan of God the Father. That's what I would submit. And matter of fact, you can actually see Luke make hints of this all throughout the book. And, and you know it's kind of an emphasis because he doesn't really argue his case. He just kind of mentions it randomly. That's how he argues. He's assuming Christ is continuing his work, continuing to do many things. Acts 2, 33, it says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that is Jesus, has poured out this which you both see and hear. That's Peter. Or how about in Acts 9, in the commissioning of Paul, the Lord is referenced as closely involved. It says this in 9 verse 15, but the Lord said to him, Paul or Ananias, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name to the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Notice Jesus is still advancing his program through appointed and chosen men. Or in Acts 11.21, we read, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The Lord's hand is on people. Or how about in Luke 16, verse 14? Luke describes Paul and Silas's interaction with Lydia in the city of Philippi. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, whose heart the Lord opened to pay attention to the things spoken by Paul. Or another verse I really love in Acts 23, verse 11, when Paul is awaiting his sentencing, it says this, On, on that very night the Lord stood at his side and said, Take courage, for you have solemnly borne witness to my cause at Jerusalem, so you must bear witness at Rome also. 
Or how about going back to Acts 9 again? The Lord himself appears to the apostle or soon-to-be Apostle Paul, then the, the scumbag Saul on the road stops him in his tracks and he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Notice Christ's concern is tied up with his people. He is intimately connected to them. Where if you touch Jesus, you touch him. He is still with them. To persecute them is to attack him in some way. And so, when, when I went through Acts with the youth group, I kind of just hammered this title into their heads again and again and again. This is the title of the book of Acts. It's clunky, it's long, but it's helpful, I think. The book of Acts. The unstoppable acts of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ as he continues his work of saving sinners through the church's witness by the power of the Holy Spirit according to the kingdom plan of God the Father. Or you could just say the mission of the triune God. But it's a lot more fun to say the continued work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the continued, the continuation of who Jesus is and does. Notice, and just, just to hammer this point home in your hearts, this is not the acts of a God without a plan. This is not the acts of a distant and detached God who just leaves his spirit here until the work on earth is done. When you read Acts, you read the continued acts of the Lord, of the church, as he shepherds, guides, and guards his beloved he is a God who is present, and He is a God who is active. And He is still that way today. He is the chief shepherd that keeps His eye on the church. And how does this present and active shepherd respond when His people sin? Well, let's go back to Acts 4. And let's take a running shot at our verses by reading from Acts 4.32 all the way through 5.11. Acts 4.32. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one was saying that any of his possessions was his own, but for them everything was common. And with great power the apostles were bearing witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, and who owned a field, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man, Ananias, and his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why 
has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Well, it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your authority? Why is it that you laid this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard. And the young men rose up and wrapped him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now, there was an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter responded to her, tell me whether you paid this much for the land. And she said, yes, that much. Then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. Before we get into it, just a, just a little observation here. Notice this is an embarrassing story indeed. This is one of those embarrassing Bible stories. Just when things are going well, two members of the church throw it all off. Why is this included? Why would anybody in the church want this story to be told? It's actually a lot like the story of Achan in Joshua 7, a very similar time frame, just when the nation is crossing over the Jordan, beginning to take their inheritance, then, then one man sins and drives the whole entire body to a halt. Matter of fact, there are parallels in the language in the uh, uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament that are striking, as if Luke is trying to make a connection. But I would say there is something significant and very encouraging about the fact that this story is here and it's so embarrassing to us. Matter of fact, whenever we encounter an embarrassing story in the Bible, we should be encouraged. Why? Because this actually proves the Bible is reliable. Well, what do you say to your kids when they, when they ask you, is the Bible reliable? You could say all sorts of things. You could make all sorts of answers. You could say it's proven by scrutiny. No book has been under such intense and hostile investigation, and errors can never be made to stick. It's proven by scrutiny. It's, it's proven by prophetic confirmation. There are 350 messianic prophecies alone that Christ fulfilled. That's nearly impossible to do by accident. It's proven by consistency. Uh, the Bible is made up of 66 or so books written over by 40 authors over a period of about 1,500 years, and it is remarkably consistent with itself. It's proven by consistency. It's proven by history and archaeology, although I wouldn't put m as much weight in this argument, although it is significant. The Bible holds up remarkably well to archaeological finds. 
Matter of fact, sometimes people think they have found something that disproves the Bible, but just a matter of years and keep digging, and we find the Bible to be remarkably consistent, and the findings of archaeology to be consistent with the Bible's claims. It's also proven by the, we could call it reality correspondence, Maybe this is subjective, you could say, but the, the Bible actually has a lot of explanatory power for why the world is the way it is. Sin makes a whole lot of sense when you look at the world and the Bible's interpretation of it. You could also look at the Bible as proven by eyewitness authority. I love uh, Vody Bauckham's impressive quote. He writes this, The Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claimed that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. It's proven by eyewitness authority. Or you could look at it as proven by the Spirit's internal witness. We have places in 1 John 2 or uh, 1 Corinthians 2, which teach that the Spirit has an internal testimony in our spirit that calls to us and proves to us that the Bible is true in the life of the believer. Or you could say it's proven by Jesus' testimony. This is huge to me. Jesus affirms the authority and reliability of the entire Old Testament. And Jesus isn't easy on himself either. He chooses to reference the hardest parts of the Old Testament. He chooses to affirm the historicity of people like Jonah and Adam and Eve and Noah. And Jesus affirms it all. It's almost as if he was purposing to, pur- to prove those parts. But I could also say to you that the Bible is proven by its embarrassment. Think about it. If uh, these words were written by mere humans, we wouldn't want to include some of the embarrassment that they cover. The Bible is plain and honest about the failures of God's people. And that is affirming to us. But that brings us back to our our text. And we're going to be in, in Acts 4 and 5 here for our remaining moments. But let me just give you a few headings to kind of think about our passage this evening. First off, consider the setting, the setting here. What is the setting of the early church at this point when we get to Acts chapter 5? Well, a lot of good things were happening, weren't they? Since Pentecost, they had a hearty boldness. And you see this in verse 29 and 31, right? Despite all of the intense pressure that was against them, they prayed for boldness in verse 29. And as a result, they were filled to speak with power and boldness in verse 31. Notice also, they had a generous grace about them. Verses uh, 32 and through 35, we read that no one had material needs among them. They were filled also to care for one another in the church. The Holy Spirit also worked that way. But they also had an authoritative conviction. They were still doing what Acts 2.42 had described. They were still devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Acts 4.33 reads almost like a result of their great conviction in the apostles' teaching, right? Great grace was upon them all. 
At least that's the way it works logically to me. It's implied that their authoritative conviction and their belief in the truth of the Word of God that was being spoken to them by the apostles led them to great generosity with one another. And notice, once again, the result of Christ's continued activity in the church through his ministers is described as great grace. Great grace. They also had an index of examples, and and by this I mean just lots of men and women that were astounding and full of the Spirit. One of my favorite parts of, of the book of Acts actually is all of the individuals that we meet that aren't apostles. Just regular Christians do amazing things for Christ. Like in Acts 4, we see one of my favorites, Barnabas. It wasn't just the apostles leading the show. The whole church was filled with the same spirit that was empowering the apostles. And they were all speaking with boldness. And they were all giving generously through the spirit. All of this good stuff apparently seemed to produce a unique kind of temptation for the early church as well. What do we read in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2? Notice, we have just met a good name, a good man who is named Barnabas. And then in 5, verse 1, we are introduced to another good, or a man that is named who is not so good. And Ananias and his wife Sapphira sell a piece of property and kept back some of the proceeds for themselves. It's as if, and here's where we rely on the setting a little bit, it's as if Ananias and Sapphira saw what Barnabas did, saw the response that the church gave them. Maybe the ooing and aahing, maybe that cool nickname, Barnabas, son of encouragement. And they were envious. They envied his fame. They also feared the others, perhaps. They didn't want to be seen as unspiritual. And this is always a danger, isn't it? When you are in a healthy spiritual place and you are not healthy spiritually, that's a dangerous place to be in. And what's the temptation here? It appears to be doing something for the wrong reasons. Uh, Doing something right just to fit in. Doing something not from a gracious heart or gracious generosity, but from pride and envy and a fear of man. That's what motivated them. Notice the, the setting in which sin stirred was a lot of good stuff in the church. That's the setting. Let's look at another heading, the sin. This is fascinating. At first, what does the sin appear to be? Not giving everything that they had to God, right? At first, that's what it is. It it appears like. But this, I would say, is a misinterpretation of the text, and it would lead to a lot of wrong applications, it would be a wrong application of this text to say, if, if I don't give everything I have to God, he's going to get me and get my wife. It would be a wrong application. But we need to read closely. Read verse 5 with me again. 
Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the price of the land? Notice, the Holy Spirit informs us of the heart of the matter. Someone else has filled the heart of Ananias. And it is not the Holy Spirit. It's Satan. This is actually the first reference of Satan in the book of Acts. He has been sneaking behind the scenes ever since Luke 22.3 where he entered the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. And notice the language. Once again, Satan has filled the heart of Ananias. What does that mean to fill someone's heart? It means to gain control over, gain influence in. As a matter of fact, you know this word because we just read it in Acts chapter 4. When the subject is the Holy Spirit, a lot of good things, incredible things happen. Peter in in 4 verse 8 was filled with the Holy Spirit and, and answers with boldness and speaks truth. In 4.31, the whole church is filled with the Holy Spirit through prayer and begins to speak the Word of God with confidence. Matter of fact, you could could compare Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 where Ephesians is talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit and Colossians has parallel language and say, uh, what does it look like? How do you know you are filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, it's when the Word of God has a dominating grasp on your heart and your mind and your life. Well, this presents two questions. If, if, the, if, the, if, if Satan can do this. Question number one, uh, just how easily can Satan do this? And question number two, can he do this to just anyone he likes? Well, to answer question number one, this isn't a satanic indwelling or inhabiting. Notice Luke is very clear with the language. He says, filled. And it parallels to the way the Holy Spirit is said to fill someone. This isn't Satan overpowering the will of a believer despite their efforts to avoid him. This appears to be Satan taking advantage of small, seemingly insignificant, acceptable sins like greed and pride and envy. Matter of fact, we we read in, in Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul warns believers of a danger that is parallel to this. He says in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. What does it mean by an opportunity? The devil doesn't cause the anger in this context, but he can easily use anger for his own purposes, particularly if the anger is allowed to simmer for a while. Even if he doesn't own your anger, he'll gladly help you spend it. And this and and other sins may seem small and acceptable to us, 
but they are sizable and serious in the hands of the enemy of our God. Matter of fact, Ephesians 4, 28 or 29 through 30 says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for building up what is needed so that it will give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Notice, the sins of greed and envy and pride actually show up on the most frightening lists in the Bible, don't they? They show up on that frightening list in Galatians 5. The works of the flesh include jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, envy. This is a list of a life that is opposed to the Spirit of God. They show up in that list in Ephesians 5.3 when Paul warns of the things that are improper among the saints, which include greed. This is a, a list of old self-living Uh, This is a list that is an evidence of a life that's outside of the kingdom of God. They also show up in Romans 1, particularly in verse 29. They are part of all manner of unrighteousness, and that includes greed, envy, deceit, gossips, arrogance. This is a list of a society that is actively against God and under His judgment. And they show up in, in a list in Colossians 3 verse 5 as things that a Christian must put off, evil desire, greed. This is a list of the inner qualities of an idolater. That's a, a frightening list of lists. And this is the point. When you make peace with greed, envy, anger, deceit in your heart, you make peace with heart opposition to the Spirit your old life, societal wisdom that's under God's judgment, and a heart of idolatry. That's what you make peace with. You are walking in worldliness, and you're walking at cross-purposes with God, and the devil will have a field day with your life. You will give him much room to maneuver. That's how Satan can take advantage of a believer. But before we continue, we haven't really talked about what this sin really was yet. Verse 4, Peter explains what the sin is very clearly, and it's very important that we read verse 4. Peter says this, Well, it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your authority? Why is it that you laid this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. What was the sin that Ananias and Sapphira were committing? Now listen closely. It wasn't a sin against communism. It wasn't because Ananias and Sapphira didn't give everything they had to the joyful generosity building fund that the Lord got them. It wasn't also that they should have given more. 
It wasn't also that they were misers. Notice this. They could have done the following three things and not been struck by God. They could have not sold any of their property at all and been fine. They could have sold their property and kept all of the proceeds to themselves and been fine. They could have, even they could have, sold their property and kept some of their earnings and been fine. But read closely. Their problem is that they gave, they said they gave all when they really only gave part, right? Their problem, their sin was that they wanted it to be known that they were on spiritual par, equality with the other spiritual elites in the church, like Barnabas. They wanted people to ooh and ah when their names were echoed in hallways. They wanted the power of godliness without the price, didn't they? This is spiritual hypocrisy. Spiritual spiritual hypocrisy is wanting to be seen outwardly as something that's different than what is inwardly true of you. And that was their sin. They thought they could lie to the Spirit of God. But this leads us to our other serious question, and I'm sure this is the one that you're always asking but were they really Christians? Can this happen to just anyone? Well, to quote Fox News, we will now report and you can now decide. I'm going to give you some reasons why I am convinced they are Christians. But you decide. Number one, they are listed among the believers. This list is the weakest arguments to the best arguments, by the way. But they, notice, are listed among the believers. Luke assumes they are believers. Luke, secondly, leads us to believe they are among those who had believed in verse uh, 32 of chapter 4. And notice this, their sins, thirdly, were explicitly stated as against the Spirit, which, if we were to borrow Ephesians 4.32 language, seems to suggest it's more of a Christian sin. Matter of fact, this reminds me of the church in Corinth. What was their problem? What did Paul accuse them of? He didn't accuse them of being immature and sinning because they lacked the Spirit or they needed a second baptism. No, their sin was so serious because it was expressly against the presence of the Spirit in their life. To quote biblical doctrine, in fact, they were sinning not because of the Holy Spirit's absence, but in spite of the Holy Spirit's presence. And Ananias and Sapphira were sinning despite the Spirit's presence. The Christian doesn't lose the Spirit when they sin, as Ephesians would tell us. They, they grieve the Spirit. But here's another argument, and this is very convincing to me. Notice, they are not exposed as make-believers. If there was ever a spot where you would think you'd find church discipline saying, here are false believers, I would think it would be here. 
And notice also, their judgment has a sobering, sobering effect on the church of God. Chapter 5, verse 11, notice the church isn't patting themselves on the back. (laughs) I'm glad that can't happen to me. They're shaking with fear. Look at what can happen from the heart of sin. But we report, you decide. This leads us to our, our next heading, the severity. The severity. God deals severely with the sins of the saints. As we see in, in, in 5, 5 through 10, Ananias collapses before the apostles. And now some commentators seem to want to try to do jumping jacks while they're interpreting the scriptures and want to figure out what in the world this medical situation was that happened to Ananias. And it seems as though, maybe I'm being a little suspicious here, it seems as though they're trying to find any other explanation than a supernatural direct striking by God. Some people would say, oh, he just had a stroke. But there is good reason to see a direct a direct and immediate judgment of God here. And it is verse 8 when Sapphira shows up to the scene. (laughs) Notice, she is evaluated as an individual for her part in the crime as well. There's a side application to this, right? You, You may suffer for another's crime, but Scripture says you will be judged for your own. Matter of fact, Unbelievers will be judged, Revelation 12, uh, 20, verse 12 says, according to their deeds, and even believers will be uh, judged as well, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 10, each according to what he has done, whether good or bad. There will be a, a recompense, an answering before the Lord. And even though these two judgments are vastly different in their consequence, there, there's a pattern here, right? You will answer for your own sins, your own faults. And we read something here in verse 8, right? Sapphira was more than just aware of this sin. She was in on it as well, right? He asks her a question. Was this how much you guys sold the property for? And she says, yes, for that sum, right? She was gripped with the same pride, the same greed, the same ambition, the same covetousness as her husband, She had the same planned hypocrisy in her response. But notice this. She died exactly the same way that her husband died. I think that rules out a medical stroke. (laughs) And yes, this happens to believers. We read in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20, right? Paul says, some of you are eating the Lord's table in an unworthy way. That's why some of you are weak and why some of you are dead. But I would submit to you that this is severity, but such severity in the life of a believer is loving. Christ exposes and reveals secret sins in the Christian for purity's sake. He is a holy God. He has both a love for the believer and for the church at the same time. A sin like this creeps and crawls and never stays where you place it. It expands, it grows. Christ's discipline also of the believer at 
at times is a hidden mercy. What is the result if you're allowed to continue in sin? Grief upon grief. Sin hinders growth. It's always grief to those who continue in sin. This severity is loving. But let's look at our last heading. Let's look at the sobriety for one moment. Verse 11, it says, Great fear, great fear was on the church. Fear is spoken of often in the book of Acts. But did you know that it's only spoken of as great fear right here? Why do you think that is? This is the only place in Acts where we see great fear gripping someone's heart. So the answer to our question, how does the Lord respond to sin in His earthly body, is this. God breaks for sin. He slows down. He stops the operation to fully deal with sin. He is like a good parent who does not let you continue in your foolishness because your foolishness will be grief upon grief. And impurity will poison Poison the whole. Sin will always have a corrupting, blunting, clouding influence in the lives of the church. Case example, Ananias and Sapphira. They are the result of unchecked worldliness in their heart. And it would have spread. But wow, look at this. Look at this as well. Look at the, the sobering spiritual growth that results from this as well. 12 through 13, read this. Now, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were happening among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people were holding them in high esteem. Notice two things are happening at the same time. Incredible spiritual growth is happening, but incredible fear is happening at the same time. Many are joining the church in true, authentic repentance and faith, and many are staying away because they are make-believers and they know it. That's what happens when the purity of the church is upheld by its Lord. The church grows. Believers grow. What are our takeaways from this? Let me suggest to you a few lines of application. Number one, we should be urgent and sober about our sin. Urgent and sober, of course, means that you call sin what God calls it, and you deal with it with urgency even if you're not the only one sinning in the relationship. What is, what is, the, what is the requirement for the quiet uh, disease of cancer? It's quiet, it's slow, but you must not be slow in how you treat cancer. Sin is the same way. Here's another application. We should be humble and sober in how we handle sin. Even when we are handling sin with a fellow believer, we should be gentle, 
Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, even if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each of you looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. We should be humble because uh, temptation is seeking an opportunity even in our effort to do good, it would seem. Church discipline, it must be hammered into our heads and hearts again and again, isn't us, the good guys, trying to get rid of them, the bad guys. It is an act of love, an act of restoration, an act of humility, and an act of sobriety, and an act of urgency. At the same time, I would suggest another application. We should also be rejoicing and sober, shouldn't we? Jesus, we see in his love and in his care for us, stops for sin so that we will not continue in it. And even if our sin seems to slow down our progress, we should also remember that the gospel of Jesus Christ is never stopped by our sin, is it? There is not one sin that is unpaid for, unsatisfied by our Lord. Even the ugliest sin in our last moments of our life is paid in full. We will meet Christ on that day and He will say the same thing to the sinner as He does to everyone else, right? Your iniquity is taken away. Your sins are atoned for. Even in the worst Christian. But also, we should rejoice and tremble. We should rejoice and tremble. Your Lord, who purchased you and who owns this church, is keeping his eye on this church and is protecting this church and is shepherding this church and cares for this church. And that should cause us to tremble and rejoice. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who has laid down his own life for us, the weakest of sheep, we pray for your mercy and your continued presence among us to sanctify us, to humble us, and to cause us to rejoice. We rejoice in the greatness of the gospel that saves even the sinner who sins in their last moment. But we pray that we would not be a church like this. We pray that we would be, we would be Christians and a body of believers that uses our energies and is filled by your Spirit to speak your gospel as many ways and as many places as we can. We pray all this in Jesus' name, into your name. Amen.